Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the chance to hear from you and to uh, be encouraged and be challenged. And God, I pray that you'll open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Heidi today. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for just preparing the way for this and for opening us up in prayer. Elizabeth I was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. You're sitting back so far, I'm coming to you today. <clears throat> she ascended to the throne of England in 1558 and ruled for 44 years. In addition to being the most powerful woman in England, she was also known to be a major trendsetter when it came to fashion and beauty. Women all over England tried to copy her look. In the late 16th century, if you were to be considered beautiful, you were going to need white alabaster skin. This pale skin could be achieved by a number of means, but the most popular was to use ceruse, which was a mixture of white lead and vinegar. The white foundation was applied to the face, to the neck, and to the bosom. Once the ideal whiteness was achieved, little blue veins would be traced onto the skin. Coal was used to outline the eyes so as to make the whites of the eyes seem brighter. Vermilion, that was a red pigment made from mercury sulfide, was applied to the lips. The last layer was uncooked white egg white, which was used to glaze the complexion. It created a smooth shell and helped to hide the wrinkles. Thin, arched eyebrows were the fashion, as was the high hairline. And so, like many of the others at the time, she plucked her hair daily. The high forehead was a sign of aristocracy, so it was common for women of that time period to pluck one inch or more back from their hairline. With the poor dental care of the period, the monarch had terrible, rotting, smelling teeth and she was forced to have many removed. To hide the appearance of hollow cheeks, which was caused from the loss of teeth, she reportedly stuffed rags into her mouth. Queen Elizabeth had smallpox at the age of 29, and that left her with many facial scars, which was supposedly the reason that she started wearing the foundation to begin with and the reason that she caked it on so thick. However, it turns out that rubbing white lead onto your skin is not very healthy. And neither is licking your lips that have mercury on it. The reality was her beauty regiment was slowly poisoning her. Between aging and her toxic makeup, her skin was turning gray and becoming shriveled, which she countered by wearing more makeup. She eventually would lose her hair and her teeth and would refuse to have any mirrors in her house, in her home. I wonder how many of you today would consider a plucked forehead covered with chalk, then drawn with blue magic marker lines on it, 
Would you consider that beautiful? How should you define beauty and adornment? And is it something that we should pursue? And how much of our lives should it involve? We're going to be trying to answer some of those questions this morning. If you have your Bibles or your observation worksheets, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're starting. Chapter 3 verse 1 says this. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, the wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Your lesson this week was called Adorned, with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This morning we're going to attempt to look at that by going through this passage a phrase at a time. Notice it starts, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Did we not just have a lesson on this? Answer yes. We have them all the time in this class. But uh, in spe specifically, we had one last semester. We had a full week talking about being submissive to our husbands. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast if you, if you need to. At, at that time, we talked about what submission is. We talked about what it isn't. We're not going to repeat all of that today. But we do want to talk about what Peter brings to the discussion. And so we'll be looking at that. Now, by way of a quick review, let's at least define the word. And that is, the word submission is the Greek word hupotasso. We talked about it last week, in fact. It means to place or arrange under. It was originally a military word that was talking about arranging and aligning for battle. For your handout today, however, I want to give you a definition. It is a little bit John Piper and a little Wayne Grudem. Here's our first point. We're talking about submission to your own husband. It is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership within the limits of obedience to Christ. Last semester. We said submission was an attitude. We said it was an attitude to be agreeable and amenable to his leadership, provided he's not leading you to do something sinful. Now, I want you also to notice in Peter, he says it is between you and your own husband, not all men. This is unique to your own relationship. All right, that's review. Nothing new there. But I want you to take a look at that little phrase that I skipped in the same way. You might want to underline it. That word, we're going to treat this a lot like we did with the word therefore, okay? This is a connecting phrase. It's connecting what you're about to read with what you just read. So 
if we're going to understand this correctly, we need to go back and take a look at what we've just read. So let's do that. Go back and look at chapter 2. You may remember, because we were in there last week, we talked about slaves submitting to masters. We talked about believers submitting to those who were in authority over them. So we're having a continuation of talking about submission. But I want you to take a look at verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21 said this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We talked about that. We talked about that word example. We said that Jesus has left us an example. We are to duplicate and follow in his footsteps. And how are we to do that? We lay down our lives. We talked about that last week. That whole section in chapter 2 is talking about how Jesus suffered and died. So then we get to chapter 3 and we see that little phrase, in the same way. You got it? In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Wives, when it comes to your own marriage, when it comes to the relationship that you have with your husband, you are to follow the example that Jesus has left for you. You are to lay down your lives. You're going to be too submissive to your own husbands. You're going to voluntarily align behind your husband. You're going to have a disposition that says, I delight in your leadership. You, instead of bossing him and manipulating him and telling him what to do and thinking that everything that you decide in your family has to be done 50-50, you're going to affirm his leadership. You're going to lay down your life and line yourself up behind your husband. Now, what's the first question that comes to mind? In everything, do you know, do you realize what my husband is like? I mean, we have talked before about uh, being submissive and being told that uh, we're not required to submit to abuse or sin, but what about the other stuff? What if he's a real slacker? What if he's lazy? What if he's passive? What if, what if I can tell that he hasn't been reading his Bible and he's making his decisions in a really selfish way? What about then? Well, let's read and see what it says. Look what it says in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that, e so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I want you to notice the phrase disobedient to the word. In the book of 1 Peter, believers are described as obedient to the word and unbelievers are being described as disobedient to the word. So Peter is addressing the question of what should a wife do if she is a believer but she is married to an unbeliever? Should she submit to him? And what's the answer? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, before we get into the explanation of that, I think there's something important here that we can see and that can be inferred. And that is a husband's spiritual maturity or his total lack of it 
has no bearing on whether a Christian wife should submit to him. Let's make that our point. Number two, while a wife is not to submit to sin, she is to submit to her own husband despite his spiritual condition. God has not made you judge over your husband's spiritual condition. It is not your job to determine if your husband has been having his devotions or reading his Bible before you willingly submit to him. It is not our job to determine if our husbands are spiritually qualified to lead. It is our job to submit. And can I just say, there is great freedom in this. There is great freedom in this. Now, let's see what Peter says. He says, if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Here's number three on our papers. God uses the wife's submission to impact the husband. We don't want to miss this. Now, the context of this passage is the wife married to the unbeliever and unbelieving spouse and his being one to the Lord. That's the context, right? But there's wisdom here for those of us that have husbands that are believers too. And notice what it says. They may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. All right, to the wife married to the unbeliever, According to this passage, your submission is going to be one of the primary ways that you influence him. Your behavior, your agreeable, chaste, and reverential behavior is going to be your primary means of influence. Should you try to influence your unbelieving husband? Yes, absolutely. Should you repeat the great sermons you hear? Should you post Bible verses on his mirror? Should you set his car radio to Christian radio stations? Okay. Probably not. Probably not. Peter says, they may be one without a word. Does that mean you don't share the gospel with him? No, not at all. The implication in this passage is that he has already heard it and has been disobedient to it. Okay, so Peter's not forbidding you from talking to your husband about Jesus. He's reminding you that in the case of an unbelieving husband, this is a good thing to remember, it is eyes over ears. Eyes over ears. He's going to be watching you model the gospel as you lay down your life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Here's number four on your paper. With an unsaved husband modeling the gospel, by laying down your life, will have more impact than sermonizing and words. Now, <clears throat> I want to be real clear here. We're not saying that you don't talk or that you don't explain. The point is, when it comes to the unbelieving husband, and, and really, we could even pass this on to dealing with any of your unbelieving family or friends that you are constantly around, that you are spending a lot of time with, and that you have already spoken to 
about the gospel. You're going to have maximum impact as they observe you modeling the gospel and laying your life down for the glory of God. Okay? All right, now, um, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. All right, now Peter is talking about chaste and respectful or reverent behavior toward God. All right, and last semester we did a whole lesson on this. So um, the unbelieving husband is to be able to observe his wife and her chaste and that she's living her life in fear of God. And, and for that matter, all of our husbands need to be able to see that. And observe. We women, we get uh, very comfortable talking. We, we, want, we want to use our words, and we need to remember, hey, our men, they're visual, and we can apply that here. All right, now here's number five. Our husbands need to be able to observe our modeling a chaste and reverent lifestyle. All right, let's move on to verse three. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. All right, Peter is a very brave man. He is talking first about submission, and now he's going to talk about a woman's outward appearance. And he says, your adornment. That word adornment in the Greek, it is the word cosmos. I have this on your paper. We get our word cosmos from it and cosmetology. It was a word that referred to an ordered system, a system where order prevails. And the thinking was that if something was well-ordered and arranged, it was beautiful. And so from there, you get the English translation into adorn and decorate. All right, now Peter understands something. He understands that we women... We have an innate desire to adorn or be beautiful. And we've talked about this in the past. We've said when the first woman, when, back when we did our womanhood series, and we talked about how men, men are wired to appreciate a beautiful woman. Now sin has, can pervert that, but men have an innate design to appreciate a beautiful woman. That's not something they're taught. They, they are, that's innate. We women, on the other hand, we have an, an innate desire to be beautiful or to beautify. Now that too can be perverted by sin. We've talked about that. You might remember the story I shared back then about my um, friend whose husband went on a mission trip to Africa and he was going to work with the orphanage there. And because of health reasons, all the little children had to be buzzed. And so my girlfriend thought, I will send a big bag of little head bows and, and headbands. Well, her husband thought it was just a terrible waste of valuable suitcase space. On his way over there, he thought there were better things to take until he got there and saw how just excited all those little girls were about wearing a little head bow. And he said the missionary men, they would walk around and they would say to the little girls, pretty, pretty. And they would giggle and get all excited. Okay? Now... Peter understands he's not forbidding women from using outer adornment, okay? But he says, ladies, as you put in order, as you arrange to be beautiful or appealing to your husbands, now remember, that's the context of this. He's telling them, don't rely. Don't depend on your outer adornment. They may have been tempted to do that with their unbelieving spouses, okay? He's saying, don't rely on the cosmetics or the stylish clothes, or the pretty hairdos, okay? He's not saying you can't use them. He's saying don't depend on them. 
Don't be preoccupied with them. That's what the world is doing. That's what the world is telling you to do. Let me ask you, are you preoccupied with your outer adornment? What if I asked you to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10? How would you, how would you rate yourself? How many of you on any given Sunday come into church or Sunday school and immediately begin comparing yourselves to the other women? And you find yourself thinking, oh man, look, she's already lost her baby weight. She's already back into normal clothes. Or if I was only thinner like her or taller like her or curvier like her or had a nicer wardrobe like her, then I would feel beautiful. Then I would feel adequate. Well, what does Peter have to say? I mean, after all, this is a book about encouragement. So, would he say, ladies, you just need to be like men. Do you remember those little boys over in Africa that didn't care about their headbands? You need to be more like men and not be concerned about such things. No, he does not call you to be like men. He does say to set your heart on the right kind of beauty. You want to be beautiful? Fine but pattern it after God's idea of beauty. He says, verse 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Your beauty, your concern for beauty, must not be merely external. The physical, the outward adornment isn't being prohibited here. He's just saying, use your energies and your passions and your concerns. They're not to be focused on them. Instead, let it be on the hidden person of the heart, your hidden person. That's what you are to be putting in order. He says, make the inner person more beautiful. Now, how do you do that? Well, look what he says in verse 4. He says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Peter is saying don't spend your time adorning something that fades and doesn't last. One of the things I've noticed over the years with my kids is if we look back at pictures of the babies they will always point out what I was wearing or, or in my hair, my hairstyle at the time. And it's always funny. It's always something that everybody chuckles and laughs at. But you need to understand something. When I was raising babies and living in my hometown, I went to the most famous hairdresser in town. <laughs> there was a very long waiting list to get in there. He always had me with a very stylish look. I was also wearing clothes that were very fashionable. They all had shoulder pads, but they were still fashionable. <laughs> it was fashionable. Now, what's my point? My point is my outward adornment had a very short shelf life. And so will yours. <laughs> so what does Peter say? Look at verse six. Or here's number six on our papers. Outward adornments are temporary and fading, while inner adornments are imperishable and not subject to decay. I've shared this story before. <clears throat> I had terrible acne as a teenager. I was skin and bone skinny, <clears throat> had terrible acne and red hair 
when it was not fashionable at the time. There were like two people that had red hair. One was Carol Burnett and the other was Danny Partridge. The, to make matters worse, I had a very pretty younger sister. She was beautiful. She looked like Marsha Brady. And she really, she was prettier than Marsha Brady. She had long brown hair, it was straight. She had clear skin, she had big blue eyes, just a few little freckles over her nose like Marsha. She was, she was very pretty. Okay, so, but it was about that time, I was in the seventh grade when I became a believer. By the time I'm in eighth grade, my complexion is just really bad. And so I began to pray. And I would pray and beg God to please, please, please fix my complexion. But, but he didn't. It got worse. And so I would go into class and I would see these young girls with this beautiful clear skin and they were so pretty. And I would look at them and I would know I am, I am nothing like that. Well, also at that time, as a new believer, I was starting to develop a deep love affair with the word of God. And I remember reading my Bible one night and I came across a passage that said, be the first to say hello. Be the first to say hello. I don't know where that is in the Bible. I was using uh, a paraphrase at the time. But at the time I'm reading this and it's like, God would have me to be the first to say hello. I know that I'm not gonna be the prettiest girl in class, but I could obey this. I could be the first to say hello and show an interest in my classmates. And so um, I'm in eighth grade, I, I didn't know any better, so I began to take this very literally. And I did a lot of waving that year, you know, I would just hello, hello, hello. And um, I, I knew I'm not going to win any beauty contests, but I could uh, obey God's word and be kind. What I didn't realize at the time was acne was a gift. Acne was a gift. Because it forced me to look in. It forced me to put my focus on things that were eternal and, were, and wouldn't fade. It forced me to consider obedience and pursuing something that was imperishable. I learned at a very young age that there are always going to be more beautiful women than me in a room. Even if my face got cleared, I knew that was still gonna be the case. I knew that there would always be women more beautiful, better built, better dressed. I was learning at a very young age to have a proper sound thinking about beauty and adornment. What is, what should define our beauty? If not the outer shell, then what? Verse four says, to adorn our hidden inner person with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now what is that? Qu gentle and quiet. Is he saying that you gals that are bubbly and energetic and outgoing, that you need to bring it down a notch? Is he saying that women should be seen and not heard? Is he saying that the quiet, shy girl is the more godly? 
Well, let's define those words and find out what they mean. The word gentle, sometimes it is translated meek. In the Greek, it is the word preos. It means mild, humble, meek. The word used to be used of animals and it meant tamed. Preachers will often refer to being meek as power under control, but there's more to it. And I have this on your paper. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. And here's number seven on your paper. Gentleness is to be willingly under the sovereign control of God. That's the idea of meekness. Okay, gentleness, meekness. It is an attitude of trusting God and realizing that whatever we're going through is being permitted by God. It's being filtered by the sovereignty of God to be used for his glory and ultimately for our good. And Peter is saying, wives, adorn yourselves with that. You want to talk about adorning yourself? Put that on. Now, can a non-believer adorn themselves with gentleness? No. No, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It is a supernatural quality. Now, does it mean that you're to be passive or indecisive or silent or weak? Not at all. Okay? It means that your strengths are going to be channeled into the service of God. You're like the horse that's being tamed. Okay? Your response and actions are going to be under the moment-by-moment -moment control of the Spirit of God. All right, that's gentleness. What about the word quiet? What does that mean? Well, quiet, that word is hisukios. It means tranquil, peaceful, at rest. It means free from agitation of mind or spirit without turmoil, well-ordered or undisturbed from and exhibiting a peaceful attitude. All right, now, and here's the thing. Peter is not saying, understand what he's saying. He's not saying your heart is like that because everything's going hunky-dory. He knows it's probably not. Okay? He's saying that your heart is to have peace. It is to have rest even in the midst of various trials. Even if you are married to a difficult, unbelieving husband. Is he saying that you're to be silent at all times and never speak your mind or show an emotion or express an opinion? Nope, not saying that. It just means that your spirit isn't churning and agitated and anxious, but it's peaceful, it's trusting, okay? Which is something that the world cannot produce, all right? It is something that only can be explained by the Spirit of God. And according to this verse, it's precious in, this, in his sight. All right, here's our next point. Number eight, quietness has more to do with the state of our heart, hearts than the quantity and volume of our words. Let's look at verse five. <clears throat> it says, for in this way, in former times, the holy woman also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Okay, those Old Testament believers, those wives, they used to adorn themselves by being submissive to their husbands. Now, we don't want to miss this. Peter is telling us here that there is something beautiful about submission. 
Have you ever thought of your submission as a beauty treatment? Have you ever thought of your submission as something that makes you more lovely? Here's our next point, number nine. Peter describes submission as a holy and unfading adornment. Now this verse is going to help explain that and it's going to give us some insight into how it is they were able to submit to their own husbands and how we can have a gentle and quiet spirit. It says they hoped in God. They hoped in God. They were submitting to their husbands, but they weren't hoping in their husbands. They were able to line up behind their husband because their hope was in God. All right, now let's look at verse 6. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. All right, what does it mean she called him Lord? Rachel Held Evans, she wrote a book about biblical womanhood. It's really more of a mockery of biblical womanhood. But she spent a year living very literally what she perceived the Bible was teaching about womanhood. And so when she came to this verse, she decided that she would spend a week calling her husband master. Literally, master, master, master. She said it was a bit strange. Yes, I'm sure it was. Is that what this verse is telling you to do? No, no, no. It says she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. It means that she's showing him respect. She's showing him respect. She is obeying. In other words, she's being submissive, and then she is calling him Lord, which means she is respecting him. That's a good double whammy right there, respecting and submission. Here's our next point. Peter encourages wives with the example of Sarah, who exhibited the power com- powerful combination of being both submissive and respectful toward her husband. Author Chuck Missler and his wife Nancy, <clears throat> they tell a story about how they were both Christians actively involved in teaching and ministry and serving, but all the while they were having a terrible marriage to the point where the wife was getting ready to leave him. And then she said God began to really convict her and impress on her the need to treat her husband like the church should treat Jesus. So she made some changes and her husband noticed. He said he began to notice that the refrigerator started to be filled with all of his favorite foods. Usually it was filled with the kids' favorite foods. He began to notice that at dinner time he was being served on China. What an amazing concept to actually stock our refrigerators with things our husbands like and serve him on the nice plates. Ladies, as much as your budget allows, serve your husband dinner and treat him as the honored guest. Treat him 
the way the church would treat Jesus with honor and with respect. I know that when you're raising kids, it's very easy to start to look at your husband and see him as just yet another person that needs fed and taken care of. But you're going to need to resist that and treat him like an honored guest. You want to treat him like the church should treat Jesus. Now why? Because according to this passage, it is precious in the sight of God because it is the way that you are going to have maximum impact. It is going to be the way that you align yourself with the will of God and you lay down your life. All right, now notice what the end of that verse says. It says, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. Now, why does he bring up fear? Well, for one reason, you just told us we were to submit to our husbands despite their spiritual condition. How's that? Hey, Peter, what if I submit to him and he ends up doing something really stupid? And it ends up costing me. I'm not talking about doing something illegal or even sinful. I'm talking about the neutral everyday stuff. That he is the leader and I submit to him and he ends up just making a mess of the things and it drags me into it. It involves the kids. Because let's be honest, anything he does affects me. I can remember... Years ago, my husband was trying to help out one of his coworkers. And so one of the nice things that he did for the guy was he co-signed on the man's motorcycle loan. It was his primary vehicle, the, the, the man. I didn't know about the arrangement until the guy got into trouble. He ended up quitting his job. He ended up quitting paying on the motorcycle. And I got this nice little coupon book in the mail from his bank. My husband didn't want his credit to go bad, so he wanted to, uh, to pay off that man's motorcycle. And so every month, I would, get, I would have to sit down and pay the bills, and I would, and I would pay that payment. And I would just, it would just, real, I'd just see, I was thinking about how that man is still driving around on that motorcycle on my husband's dime. And then I would think of all the things I could have bought with that money that month. Or I thought about the way I could be saving for my children instead of paying for this man's motorcycle. And so every month after I was done writing the check, I would go to my husband and I would remind him what a stupid idea that was he had. Well, I was greatly convicted of that and I repented. That is a story for another time. Where, where am I going with this? Here's where. Yes. Your husband is going to make mistakes. At some point, he will bring you his form of little bank coupon book. And everything even if he's the most amazing husband, he's going to make mistakes and they will involve you. He may make a decision that means you've got to move and start over. He may make a decision to change jobs, and now he's working longer hours and you're at home alone more. 
with the children. He may do something that costs him his job, and now you've got to learn to live with less money. Or maybe he decides to play basketball, and then he hurts his back or sprains an ankle, and now you've got to be nursemaid. His decisions do affect you. And while everything inside of you says this isn't fair, I should be able to have a say because what he does affects me. Peter says, submit and respect. It is the right thing to do and do it without fear. Do it without fear. No fear. Are you saying that everything will turn out? Is that what Peter's saying? That if I submit and I respect because it's the right thing to do, then everything will turn out? And I don't have to be afraid? Because to be honest with you, I'm thinking that if I obey and I respect my husband, it could end up costing me. I could end up suffering. I could end up distressed with various trials based on the decisions that he's making. Yes, it could. It's highly probable. I want to be very clear. Submitting and respecting your husband could be very costly. Being obedient to this passage and obeying and respecting your husband may recover require suffering on your part. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about submitting to an abusive husband. That's an entirely different topic. I'm talking about the suffering that comes from denying yourself in order to obey Jesus Christ. There may be suffering in the act of submission. There may be suffering in the consequences of the decisions he makes. Now, I'm not, please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to paint the picture of submission and respect as this heavy, heavy burden that women are ha just have to carry all your lives. Not, not at all. What I'm saying is that obeying and respecting your husband will at some point mean laying down your life. And here's the thing. Peter says, do that without fear. Do that without fear. But what if? What if I submit and the bills don't get paid? What if I submit and the kids are exposed to something that I don't think they should be exposed to? What about that? They may. But what does Peter say? He reminds us, you have become the children of Sarah. And Sarah was a 90-year-old woman that was as good as dead, but was able to be pregnant and have a child. What's he saying to us? He's reminding us that God is sovereign. And he is creative, and he is kind, and he is able to overrule all the laws of nature. He is a sovereign God that intervenes on behalf of the hopeless. Here's our last point. Number 10, we should not fear God is worthy of our hope. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you'll help us to be women that chase and run after true beauty, the kind that you consider precious in your sight, the kind that is the right thing to do. Help us to be women that treat our husbands like an honored guest, like, like the church is to be treating Jesus. Help us to be treating them and being inclined and yielding our hearts and, and treating them as if we are delighted that they are our leaders. I pray that you'll help us to be faithful women in this and help us not to fear in those times where we feel afraid. Help us to know that you can be trusted and to trust. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.